I had all the sales leaders tell us what accounts were best. And I said, that's really interesting. Here are the facts. And in some cases, it confirmed what they said. There was a lot of head nodding, a lot of grunting. And in other cases, it completely refuted. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. Today, you'll hear an episode from our Takeover Tuesday series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sanger Molly says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sanger Mir, welcome to another fun, fun, fun episode of uh, the Flip My Funnel podcast. This is the fourth and the final, and it's a bittersweet because every time it's, we get to this fourth one, I feel like, man, the content obviously is so good and, and everybody puts so much energy and thought in it. So I, I always feel like it's bittersweet. But we have Daniel Rodriguez from Alice, who has been doing a phenomenal job of bringing practitioners to this, this community and having them literally openly share the challenges, the successes, the, the big company, small company, everything and in and between with this idea of account-based marketing. So again, Daniel, cannot thank you enough on behalf of the community to do this and take the time to do it. It's a big commitment. And I personally, and I know the community is super appreciative of that. Oh my gosh. I mean, I would, I would actually throw that right back at you. This has been a total pleasure, a real treat. And you know, it's, it's great to be able to speak to such a large audience and be part of this community myself. So, so thank you, Sangram, and, and to those listening. Awesome, man. So tell us about the last, tell us what the name of the series is again. And again, people can go back and listen to the last three episodes. So the name of the series and who do you have to close these series out with? Yeah, so we're calling this series All In on ABM, and these are insights from marketing tech leaders who are going all in on their ABM strategy. So this final episode, I interviewed Brian Carden. He's the CMO at Fuse. And besides being, you know, just like a mentor of mine, a total aspirational kind of guy, I absolutely love Brian. He has had several experiences working at larger companies, enterprise companies as a CMO. And his communication capabilities, I think, probably far exceed others that haven't necessarily had that amount of experience. So what I wanted to know from him is, as somebody who's all in on ABM, and that was a major change for them organizationally, to be all in on ABM, what was the budgeting like? How did you talk to the other senior leaders about this? You know, what, what was that communication strategy? Were there shifts in the way that you then needed to spend and talk to people about what you were doing? and just some absolute gems of insights. And I, I, I think that many of us who aspire to be CMOs at larger companies are going to feel like they're, they're learning a lot from Brian. That is fantastic, man. Can't wait. Let's go. All right. Super excited to be joined today by Brian Carden, the CMO of Fuse. My name is Daniel Rodriguez. I'm the head of revenue at Alice. Once again, very excited to be the guest host of the Flip My Funnel podcast. Thank you so much to Sangram and thank you to the Flip My Funnel community for giving me this opportunity to have some fun with all of you and hopefully share some insights from the, the guests that we have on this uh, four-part series that we've put together. So Brian, thank you so much for joining. And why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about your, your background in marketing and some of the leadership experiences you've had? Sure thing. Great to be here, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. You know, after graduate school, 
like a lot of people, I became a consultant for a large consulting firm. I was there for about eight years, became a partner, all in B2C. So all my clients were consumer products kinds of companies like Heinz, Campbell Soup, Ralph Lauren. And then uh, we had twin boys and the idea of traveling Monday through Friday, not a good one. And so I just got a uh, headhunter call one day from Spencer Stewart to be CMO of a very large company, CMO of a company called Reed Elsevier, about a $5 billion a year company that does uh, LexisNexis. They own different databases and publishing. So I never sort of grew up in a marketing organization. I sort of went from consultants with a lot of PowerPoint, a lot of data and slides to being CMO of a very large company that had you know, hundreds of marketers. Uh, from there, I went to Forrester Research. I was having marketing and strategy there for about six years. And then my real coming of age was when I joined Eloqua in marketing automation way back in 2008. Forrester was a customer and, and I found that it really transformed what we did in marketing. And I felt myself going from sort of analog to modern marketer with Eloqua and became CMO of Eloqua during those crazy days against Marketo. We went public, bought by Oracle. And then um, I joined Fuse about four years ago and we do cloud-based communications. So that's a little bit of my history. So if you couldn't tell by that introduction, we have a rock star on our hands here. So this is going to be really exciting. You're going to live up to it. Don't worry, Brian. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be testing your rock starness uh, at, the, at the end here. So that's just a little preview of the surprise that, that you're going to you're gonna get. Um, oh, but we won't, we, we, nice <laughs> foreshadowing. I have an idea what's coming up here. Do you want to yeah. guess what the, what the surprise is at the end? Because you don't know. I think it's going to be a quiz where you're going to ask me some questions. And if I pass, you're going to give me a parting gift. <laughs> I think you, there will be some sort of quiz. I will give you partial credit for that guess. <laughs> I will give you partial credit. Partial credit. Okay. But the real reason that people have, have actually tuned in here is because we're going to dive in and we're going to spend about the next 20 minutes really talking about how do you think about, you know, as a CMO, how do you think about the budgetary aspect of ABM? And then how, how do you communicate that strategy to the other parts of the organization? So why don't, I mean, I think, I think maybe just to just kind of set things up, you know, for people like ABM for you, like when, when did ABM become something that, that you were aware of and that you then started thinking about implementing from a strategic perspective at, at a company? So I've been aware of it for a while, went by different names. I think everyone's embraced ABM, but, you know, target account program, sometimes premier accounts, like there was a focus on certain accounts. So I've been aware of it for, you know, maybe 15 years. It's had various forms, probably much longer than that. Here, though, I never really embraced a formal account-based marketing strategy until about a year into the job here. I've been here almost four years. The first year, we got some inbound. We weren't very focused. There was a lot of waste. And we went all in. And from the top down, from the board of directors to the CEO, partnering up with our head of sales. And so we're all in. It's not like a one-off or off to the side. It's the centerpiece. It's the main course. It's what we do. It's how we think about it. And, and so it's, it's really religion for us. It flows through our blood. And I'd never had that before. And in fact, I don't think I'd ever join a company again that did not have a target account program or account-based marketing. It just seems to me a natural. Why wouldn't you do that? So if, it was, if it's a religion there, I mean, were, were, you, were you the high priest? Did you have to do a lot of converting? Or was this just something that was was an inevitability that that sales was kind of already thinking about account like how how did how did the no, everyone no, we were all over the place where they okay. would pursue any friggin deal with any account in any country 
when I would say, listen, can we just not go to Africa or do we have to go to Eastern Europe? They'd say, well, if there's a deal there, let's go there. You know, or they'd say, you know, I said, well, let's not focus on financial services or education, those long deal cycles, security. They're not in our sweet spot. They would say, well, why not? You know, there's, there's this idea like, don't restrict me, like don't fence me in as most salespeople do. They want to be very opportunistic and flexible. And if someone wants to engage, they want to engage. And so we're in a market where we don't want to have a lot of waste that way. And so I think, you know, some people have used this term zero waste. And so we want to be very focused on where we spend our dollars and invest. And this idea of the marketer being the evangelist, I think that's not the right way to go. you got to bring everyone along with you. And so I may sort of start the revolution, but I don't want to put my name on it. I want it to be a company-wide initiative. Sometimes marketing goes in a certain way. Oh, it's marketing's idea or marketing's campaign. I think for an organization, that's a big mistake to try to get credit for initiating a program. I think you can go a lot further and you'll be more effective if it feels like it's a company-wide initiative. And that's sort of where we are. So did that, you know, to, to then continue that thread, was this a conversation that then was happening within the executive leadership team meetings where you were then getting buy-in from some of your counterparts on the, on, on the sales side? And, you know, is, is this something that the CEO then had to, had to say like, yes, that we're going to, we're going to kind of all get on board with this? I sort of, uh, I had like four really important opinion makers, influencers that I went to. First was we had one board member who is sort of a sales guru. He was a board member. He's a great guy named John McMahon. And he's on several other boards. He's on Sprinkler's board, a MongoDB's board. And he's just a really smart guy. So I went to him to have someone on my board be an advocate for it. So I always want to make sure that when you present something to the board, you have someone who raises their hand right away and jumps in with a very positive comment. So John was a great advocate. Our global head of sales was a great advocate. Uh, he was number two. The head of North American sales and European sales were the next. And then our CEO. And that was pretty much it. But I got them all sort of lined up and talking about it. Um, I find some examples of other companies that were doing it effectively. And I sort of said it, it did a pre and a post that we'd be much more efficient, particularly with our CAC and reducing our sales and marketing expense to revenue. So I had some numbers that would show that we'd really apply our dollars much more efficiently if we did ABM. And they were all convinced. So then from a budgetary perspective, was this something that you you built the cost of the program from the, from the bottom up or was it, you know, you had a, Hey, here's your X dollar amount of, of marketing budget. Now go figure out how to then make CAC lowest. Like, like how did you actually assemble the budget to execute this strategy? Yeah, it was bottoms up. So it was a white sheet of paper. And we said, if we're going to be all in on account-based marketing, what would it look like? Visions. I said, we're making this transition. I find them to be a really good partner. They've seen it before. They've seen what works, what doesn't. They had some good benchmark data on how to think about it. I also started talking to other CMOs that I love to talk to. I sort of had this little kitchen cabinet of CMOs who are non-competing, who I think are very advanced in what they're doing. And I really respect what they do. And I talked to them all the time and they had some ideas for me as well. So it was bottoms up, uh, completely zero-based, white paper. And then, you know, I began the journey with our head of sales, our global head of sales. And we talked about, you know, we had two approaches. The most important part is what accounts are you going to target? And it's just a lot of tribal knowledge and a lot of anecdotes and a lot of BS, frankly. Like somebody will say, oh, healthcare, I just closed a deal. Well, no one's seeing the whole picture. And so we ran two tracks. We ran sort of this anecdote track. We ran round tables with salespeople. 
you get their input to say what accounts and what characteristics of an account would be an attractive sweet spot for us. And then we also ran the numbers. I'm very data-driven, as I know you are, Daniel. And so we ran the numbers. We looked at two years of history, uh, and we appended about 20 different pieces of data, industry, what technologies they were using, you know, a whole bunch of different things to identify what are the characteristics of the attributes associated with accounts that are more likely to close. And it wasn't just a win-loss rate. We also looked at how many days in the cycle and how much discounting. So we did have several universities, and people were saying education is really good. But we dug in. We saw that those were like two-year cycles, and they were heavily discounted, and we had to build some special things. So it wasn't really in our sweet spot, uh, even though the anecdotal thing. So we had the anecdotes. And so what I love doing is I had um, all the sales leaders tell us what accounts were best. And I said, that's really interesting. Here are the facts. And in some cases, it confirmed what they said. There was a lot of head nodding, a lot of grunting. And in other cases, it completely refuted. You know, they would say certain industries or certain countries. They said, you're dead wrong. Like, our win rate is terrible. And they would see the accounts that we lost. I had no idea because I only saw one small piece of the puzzle. So getting the target accounts right was really a big deal. And we totally collaborated and partnered up with sales to do that right. What about from the both, I guess, people spend and the program spend that, that I think kind of fills in your entire pie chart of, of, you know, of, of marketing spend. Were you, were you changing? Did the mix change about the way that it was previously being done? And can you kind of go into some details about the percentages, maybe approximate percentages of money that was being spent on the large wedges of, of that, of that marketing pie so that people can just get a sense of like benchmarking, you know, like, Oh, okay. I should maybe think about not overspending in this area or underspending in this area. Yeah. So I know exactly what that is. So the big thing for us is these target accounts are large whales. So we're not a high velocity. So just give order of magnitude. Our average deal size is 250000 a year, and they're three-year deals. So we're looking at a total contract value of $750,000. And before, it was much smaller. So we went big. And what that meant was is it meant a lot more touchy-feely things. So we wanted to actually be in rooms and get meetings with CIOs. Uh, and before, we were doing a lot more transactions on the phone. So it's much more geared towards the field sales team much more high-touch kinds of things, much more uh, direct mail. That's one of the things that we're using Alice for, for example, is, is high-end direct mails to get you know, meetings with, with accounts. And so uh, some of the mix changed. We were, on the people side, uh, we were around 55, and the programs was 45, and now that's come down. So the people side, it's around 42 to 45% right now, about 55 on programs. So there's a little shift there. But it was mostly about, you know, for example, for these target accounts, uh, we would do much more field events uh, in market. We would do a lot more high-end direct mail to get the meetings. Also, uh, at these big accounts, it's not four or five contacts you need at these accounts. You need about 25 names because it's a committee buy. And very often, the salesperson is very good at threading the conversation with maybe two or three people at the accounts but marketing is able to touch maybe another 15 to 20 people. So contact discovery, getting additional accounts really mattered. Uh, nurturing of those different roles really mattered. And then the other change was we're doing lots more digital marketing by target accounts. So we're not doing uh, out of home. We're not doing a lot of general advertising. The only people that are seeing our ads are target accounts. And that really was really very fine. So if you're only focused, we're focused on 30,000 accounts around the world and that's it. Uh, 8,000 are assigned to the reps. We have 200 per rep 
approximately, but we have 30,000 target accounts. All of those are getting our nurturing, but more importantly, they're getting all of our digital ads, Facebook, LinkedIn, other, you know, other places. So we're very focused on those accounts. So per account, we're spending a lot more money, but we're not focused on accounts that aren't our sweet spot. So is it safe to say from what I'm hearing that the, the shift in, in spend to a more program heavy mix is partly because the programs themselves are allowing you to achieve some scale efficiency so yes. that it doesn't require people headcount? Is that, is that what's happening? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Also, just to be honest, we've used some contractors for different things. So we do a lot of high-end events. We have something called Game Changers, and we, do, we want to be face-to-face with these economic buyers, these champions. And so that can be a – we're willing to pay a lot of money to get a meeting. If, if, like I said, if the total contract value is $750,000, I'm willing to pay $3,000 to get the right meeting. And so it's completely different economics for us, and we have very high conversion rates. So this focus on these accounts. The other thing that's helped us also is that in this the space we're in, which is called Unified Communications, everybody is not in market every year looking to replace. So it's about a seven-year cycle. Wow. So yeah, it's long. So we have to have really good technology to understand when someone's in market looking. A lot of people you know, talk about intent data, surge data. So it's not something as simple as, oh, people came to your website, give them a call. You know, they're on your website now. We have pretty sophisticated ways of understanding levels of engagement and surge and when they're in a buying cycle. So it's the intent data, what they're searching for. Uh, we combine that with web. Are they interacting with different pages on the website? Which pages? If they go to a career page versus a product page versus a pricing page. So we can understand that when someone is in market, because of those 30,000 accounts, you know, if only whatever 10% are looking at any given point in time, you better damn know when they're in market or you miss that wave for seven years and you're not in the deal. So that's one of these other dimensions in our industry that's special. So there's some specialized technologies that allow us to do that. It's like locusts. The the buying cycles are (laughs) (laughs) got to be ready for them. The cicadas are coming. (laughs) But the cicadas, I think, have a very predictable pattern. I think they do. Very predictable. It's every 14 or 17, 17 years, it's even longer than, than your own. Well, on average, it's like seven years, but let's say someone's on some old Cisco PBX box, like they may try to ring out another year or two, but at some point that, 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 I was going to say some curse word, but that old piece of hardware, man, that just rusts and grinds to a halt. It just literally falls over and collapses, you know, but some of this hardware can last 15 or 20 years. It's just amazing. You know, I like to think we're very precise. We know the serial number of the hardware. We know what the life expectancy is, but it's just like driving a car. If you really will it, you can get an extra 50,000 miles out of a car or 20,000, even though you know what the expected life is of most automobiles. So getting that cycle right. So we couldn't just rely on what we expected, like the locusts, to come every X number of years. We had to actually know when they were starting to do research and get ahead of it. So we needed good indicators, you know, signal the noise. You know, what's the signal? What's the noise of when someone is, is in a search? That was really important. So the... It's, so when you have all these, these different programs that you're doing, the alignment that you then have to have from a communication standpoint with the sales organization, it, I feel like it, it puts a, a, a huge premium on that. Can you give people some, some tips maybe about how to, how to make sure that you're communicating program execution well with sales? Because some of these programs, I'm assuming, are happening like by marketing, 
for the benefit of sales. Some of them are happening in conjunction with sales and potentially being mostly executed by sales, but funded by marketing. So there's, there's a, a communication need there. Having an account-based strategy pulls everyone together. So I thought we'd have to do a lot more communication. We did in the beginning, but everyone knows exactly what accounts we care about, who we don't care about, and why. So here's how it aligns. If we're only focused on five industries, you have all your references in those industries. You're, you have all your trade associations with those industries. You have great use cases in those industries. You know, you have the experts at the company who know that. Just everything really lines up on those kinds of things. And then the big debate for us is when we add a new group, a new industry or a new location, should we expand our target list from 30,000? So, you know, I'm trying to think of an example, but it's like something changing the rules, you know, years after. It's like adding an amendment to the Constitution. Like, we don't take that very lightly here. You know, so when we add a new accounts, that is a, a major act and we get everybody on board. So I think it has brought everyone together. We do have lots of communication that happens, what we're doing. It happens in region though. So we have 11 regions around the world. We have a regional vice president who runs that region and we sit down with them and we talk about a plan. And the thing I have learned from account-based marketing is it's not one size fits all. So let's say in the Texas region, they have a really good partner community. So it's about what do you do with partners to do that? In the West, there's no partners. They tend to be smaller accounts, more high tech. What do you do there? Or, you know, do you do it in the Bay Area, do it in Silicon Valley, or do you do it in San Francisco? Like, there's not a lot of nuance about that. New York City, everyone, every region has their own unique characteristics. And so you have to really tailor things. So we partner up with the regional vice presidents to really make every region different and what's going to be special. We did an event in Germany. You know, who would have thought this, of course? You know, German CIOs love to drive really fast cars. Duh, you know, and so uh, we had them driving Teslas on a test track. They were going like 140 miles an hour, you know, and we thought, I, I thought, you know, let's drive, have them drive Porsches and German cars. And my guy, Roland, runs German, says, no, 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 no. They want to drive a Tesla, man. This is the new thing. Like, they can drive <laughs> Porsches all the time. But as you think about it, all these CIOs from big companies, they make a lot of money. And so the kind of things we have to do are what I call the unobtainables. You know, you're a wine guy. You know what an unobtainable is. Uh, you know, it's wine that is in such small supply that everyone's on a list. But you have to do an event that they can't get on their own. So they don't need to take them to dinner. They don't need tickets to a sporting event. They want to be able to meet the engineer who designed the Tesla, and they'll come. You know, or they want to meet the winemaker who made a small production wine and is, you know, world-renowned. You know, they don't want just a tour of a winery. They got to meet the guy or the woman who's the winemaker. So it's these very special things, and it's really fun for us, but it's not like you do something in Philadelphia and you stamp it across all 11 regions around the world. So you really have to tailor things, and that's really fun and very creative, and, um, but, but it's different. It's, it's not you know one-size-fits-all marketing and sales. Right. So last, last question, if you could go back and do this over again, what would you have done differently? And, and what advice, I think, in that would you give somebody who is, is attempting to do a, a full-out ABM strategy? So we did a really good job uh, three years ago when we worked with sales. But, you know, there's turnover on the sales team. And sometimes the new salespeople come on board and they say, what's with this? I only get 200 accounts? That's ridiculous. Or, you know, I have a background serving healthcare or or government. I want to go into that industry where I have a background. So I think we did a good job of communicating. And then we got a little complacent. 
which you mentioned earlier about the role of communication. So complacency is really the enemy of good alignment here. So we thought it was off and running, and, but then I realized I, two years into it, like, whoa, a lot of the people that were in that room who bought in have now left the company. So it was sort of a restart. And so we had to evangelize a whole new group of salespeople. So don't get complacent. You know, there's a lot written about the marketing of marketing. And I'm not that good at the marketing of marketing. I tend to be a very modest guy and I under communicate. So my team gets that. And so we're over communicating now. So we have newsletters that go out. That's all by region. We meet with the region vice president once a month. We sit down with the QBRs every quarter. So we had the steady flow of communication but I got a little complacent with the communication and that was a mistake, Daniel. There it is. So you've heard it from the guru himself, Brian Carden. Thank you. You have made it to the dessert, shall we say, ah, the, the fun bonus round. I'm very um, excited. Daniel. So what we're going to do, this is, this is not a, a game that I made up by any stretch. I think there's a couple of TV shows that, that make, make use of this game. What we're going to do is I'm going to, sing the uh, beginning of a, a phrase of a song and then you are going to sing the completion of that phrase and then guess what the song itself was or tell everybody what what the song was and we're going to do three rounds of this game how are this you feeling be, now this may be a huge challenge for me i'm very strong in in certain categories of songs <laughs> But I got to say, my mother was an opera singer. So if there's an was opera, she, oh my she was a soprano opera. And so what happened was, is that I never listened to pop music in my whole life. And so there's huge gaps. So I have a feeling we're not going to do Broadway tunes. Broadway tunes, I'm very strong. If it's, if it's new music, I'm going to struggle. But I am, I'm all open. You haven't mentioned anything about parting gifts, though, if I do well. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll see how you do. We'll see how you do before, before we make any make any uh, gift giving uh, happen here. Um, but everybody, you know, this is what we do here now. So we, there, there will, of course, be a gift. But this isn't about the gift. This is about the audience getting a chance to hear what you've got in store. So I'm not, I know that you're a show tunes guy, but I decided to go, we're going classic rock as the genre. Okay. Okay. All right. So I'll give you that at least genre hint. And, and this is going to be a you know, real struggle for me. This is going to be a real struggle. Very for me. popular. You know, I need more positivity from you. Yeah. Out of the gate here. Um, so out of the expectations. Gate. Okay, bring it on. Yes. Bring it on. Okay, here we go. All right. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. There it is. Let it, song name, which you got at the end there. Yeah, let it be. You know, obviously Lennon and McCartney, and there Paul McCartney is very, very high. He's got quite a high voice. His voice has not come down on the last 30 years. Elton's is there. Billy Joel, interesting side note, Billy Joel has come down about uh, a half an octave. So uh, wow. all of his songs, when he sings at Madison Square Garden, he's singing in a different key than the original key, but not Elton and not Paul McCartney. Very interesting. Well, you, one for one. Bonus points. I'm hoping for, oh, I don't One get it. for one. Um, I will give you a half, uh, I get an extra half point there for, for that octave knowledge. Extra half, half point. Um, we're going to, we're gonna then uh, we're gonna see how you can do with with this with this next tune right here. Here's number two, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. It's another Beatles song. Dun, 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 dun. It's it's not Blackbird. Is that Blackbird? The song is Blackbird. Okay, that's all I had to do was Blackbird. Right? You gotta <laughs> see. No, you have to you have to continue. I don't know the lyrics. Phrase. I don't know the lyrics. It's you, a great song, and uh, a guy who's a piano. And, oh, um, 
the guy who's the pianist on some late night show does a great version of this. It's a beautiful song. I don't know the lyrics to Blackbird. Okay. We're going to just, we're going to then just have to say you get no credit for that. So the credit is knowing the lyrics, not knowing the name. The credit is really like singing the continuation of it and then being able to say what song it was. In this specific case, since the lyric had the title of the song, I'm not permitted by the rule (laughs) to give you credit. So unfortunately, you don't get credit. Something like, take these broken wings and learn to fly would have have qualified. That would have qualified for one point. One out of two. Here you go. It was a beautiful day. The sun beat down. No? Nothing? Nothing. This isn't ringing any bell at all. I have a huge gap in my childhood. It's like 20 (laughs) years of pop songs. I have no idea. I I turned the radio up. I was driving. This is Tom Petty running down a dream. I'm sure it's a classic rock song. I do not know it. I couldn't name one Tom Petty song. What? Oh, my God. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I, I almost went into cardiac arrest. Is that too soon? Because I think that's actually how Tom Petty died. I, one of my great regrets was not getting to see him live. And oh. here you are, a man like, who could claim the classic rock generation. I and you don't even freaking know Petty. any of his songs. So I'm going to listen to him. I actually think there's a Tom Petty channel on Sirius. There is so now. I'm, yeah, so I'm going to listen to that. I keep flipping past it. I go to other channels. But I'm going to go to Tom Petty on my way home. I'm going to listen to him. I think one of the most underappreciated things that I have learned about classic rock is that much of the genre was born out of American blues. And you then get to hear in the, because it it isn't normally the the most popular versions of the songs that are written, but like if you're listening to a Tom Petty radio station on Sirius, you then get to hear them do some like really gritty blues. And there's a great Led Zeppelin album that they did for the BBC where they're just doing blues. Because these guys, that's how they all came up through, that was their like musical tree was was blues and improvisation. And, uh, you know, so much of, I think, what happened with classic rock was British people understanding and appreciating, like, American music that was being predominantly made by, like, black people in the South in a way that our, our own American culture wasn't appreciating. So, yeah, there it is. So, so Brian, thank you so much. You got one out of three. <laughs> we'll give you, I'll give you a quarter of a point. This is like, whose line is it anyway? The points are made up and nothing matters. You're 1.25 points out of three. How do you feel like you did? I mean, if I would have gone show tunes, let's be honest, it would have been too easy, right? It would have been too easy. So I do have this gap and I have been, I have not embraced this gap that I have. So I think I should learn more, particularly since, you know, I play jazz and I love blues and I love the heritage of the blues from the, you know, the first half of the 20th century. And I do see influences, and a lot of my friends love this era of music. I have to learn more about it. So maybe next time we can do an all-Tom Petty quiz or other bands or go back to classic rock. So I'm, I'm all in next time. Well, I think what a lot of people are going to realize is they need to listen to you talk about marketing more because this <laughs> is incredibly informative for people. And thank you very much for for taking the time. And thanks again to the Flip My Funnel community for allowing us to to share this information and uh, for us to to have this this fun. So thanks, Brian. 
Thank you. This was great. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.